as an industry, we've made it our business to learn about games, how they work, about their resonance, and their successes or failures. There's a human side to the industry as well. My name is Paul James, and welcome to Dev Diary, a series that explores and celebrates the incredible feats of the people behind the games as we dive into their stories, the highs, the lows, and everywhere in between. In this episode, I'm joined by Morgan Jaffet, current director and writer at Spitfire Interactive. So join us as we explore his journey. So today I'm joined by Morgan. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks for uh, thanks for making time. No, not a problem at all. We've been having a great time waxing about capes and some awesome stuff that uh, you've been up to, and well, for quite some time actually. We, we thought it was about time we actually got to the show. But thanks so much for coming aboard. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. And not a problem at all. I'm looking forward to seeing how you can spin various uh, capes references into the normal conversation, normal circumstance that will take me oh. back, like what you just did. One hundred percent. I'm uh, I'm happy to get a bit of capes discussion in. I'm happy to talk about. Uh, about you know what we've been up to the last few years and uh, and how it's all been going because it's been it's been a strange couple of years for yeah. the world um, and it's been a strange couple of years for us and it's we've just had our heads down and been very quietly working away um, so it's nice to to have the opportunity to to talk about things now. Yeah, and as I was talking to you about before the show, we've had so many guests over the journey site, you as being such an important figure in their own journey so far. And so it's going to be fascinating for me to be, and I'm sure the listeners now, um, to be able to pick through that and learn a little bit about everything that came earlier on and where you inter- uh, interacted with a host of these different people along the way. It's, I'm really, yeah. really looking forward to it. Yeah, that's very kind. Um, it's uh, it's nice, I think. One of, one of the things I was Probably reflecting when off. we were talking. <laughs> well, one of the things I was, I was thinking about earlier when you when you mentioned that is that uh, I I've been around as a prominent figure in the Australian games industry for a long time. I'm, I've I've been making games professionally uh, in Australia and internationally for coming up on twenty three years now. So yep, um, and I've particularly where we look at a, a, about a decade, not 12 years ago, um, I was a very prominent voice for Australian game development when there weren't many voices out in public. Yes. Uh, it was a really tough time then, and we were transitioning from the, the big studio system to, to independent development. Um, and I really felt like there was a need to, to get my voice out there to, to help promote the industry and to help move the industry forward. And over time, that became a lot less necessary because of all the fantastic young voices we had uh, rising up. And I I just, among other things, I got really tired of hearing my own opinions on things. I was much more interested in what other people's opinions were. So it's really nice to know that I've had an impact. Um, But a lot of it, I, I feel like, is just the benefit of being old. And this is this is where it turns into um, a, a, a kind of reflection on the themes of Capes because Capes is a superhero tactical strategy game, and uh, and it's about a world where the supervillains have won, and uh, and you're putting together a team of a, a young diverse team of heroes to to try and take the city back twenty years after the the city has been taken over, and 
one of the, the fundamental questions that the game asks is what does age have to offer, offer to youth it, when times are hard? And, um, and it's a really conflicted answer you know, because I'm conflicted about the, the question, I'm conflicted about the, the context. And one, one of the real joys of making games for me has always been about being able to have a conversation with the player about the yep. things that are on my mind. Um, a, a lot of Hand of Fate is me exploring what games mean through a video game about video games. Yeah, um, yeah it well, seeps through for sure. And uh, and this is just another chance to do that, um, which is really exciting. I'm, I'm super I'm super stoked with uh, with what we've managed there so far. And you know the early um, the early response and the early feedback we've had uh, has indicated that people that people really get that and appreciate that. So that's that's really nice as well. No, that's that's really really cool, and I'm I'm certainly looking forward to picking through the the likes of you know your work at Defined on Hand of Fate one and two yep. and and Capes shortly, but we've got to rewind a little bit further back, and I should also <laughs> intro the show. This is Dev Diary series where we speak to developers from throughout the industry. They share their stories, their experiences, and the journey that's led to and culminated in this current point in time. So as I said, we'll get to Capes and we'll get to Hand of Fate and some of the more yep. recent stuff uh, shortly. But first, I'd love to rewind to a point well before all of that and talk through some of your first gaming experiences. Yeah. Do you recall what or where games, where you first met games and what some uh, of your first gaming experiences were? So it depends whether we're talking about video games or, or kind of games in general. You know, one thing that... Take your uh, pick. They're connected. Well, that's, they are really connected for me. And I, I come from a family that that plays card games and, and to which that's a very important part of... Uh, of kind of how we do things. I, I used to play 500 with my mother. I used to play Mahjong with my grandmother um, when I was very young. And, you know, one of the things that I realised is that friends of my parents were science fiction nerds and early D&D players and, you know, had strange war games and board games on their shelves and all of those sorts of things. And that was always absolutely fascinating to me as a young child. Um, and it wasn't something that I was seeing so much in my social environment. And it's yeah. so it's so hard to imagine this in the context today where where gamer is a standardized social identity. But in, in the early eighties it, 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 it was wasn't. not it was not universal in this way and it was not understood. Um, so it was nice to have these people in the extended um, social community, but it was just absolutely fascinating to me. Every inch of it. Um, uh, I remember buying the you know Redbox D and D starter set. <clears throat> I actually came there from from Fighting Fantasy game books, um, which again is you know a, a, a strong reference for for what we're doing in Hand of Fate. Um, so a lot of that comes from that that the, the kind of early things that that coloured what I was doing. At some point, my um, my uncle bought an Apple computer and got rid of his uh, Dick Smith VZ200, which was a rubber keyed uh, basic computer with 4K of memory and a, another 8K block that you could plug in the back, uh, which if you touched anything on the table would cause it to vibrate enough <laughs> to break the connection 
um, and uh, caused everything to die. Ran off tapes, um, had some very, very ordinary games, but that was the first place that I was, you know, programming games for magazines and, and trying to make things work. Um, nothing was written in the version of BASIC that the BZ200 used. So there was also a lot of work involved in uh, kind of, I guess, understanding what was going on with that code yeah. and rewriting it to work on the on the uh, Dick Smith machine, uh, which is which is a strange way of interacting with the computer at whatever age I was, probably eight or nine at the time. Yes, say single figures. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, <clears throat> and. You know, I had friends who had much better computers. I had friends with Commodore 64s, you know, and just yeah. go around there and ignore my friends and, and try and play video games. And and generally they were like, look, I'm a, you know, I'm an only child and the computer is the thing my parents have bought to entertain me when I don't have friends. Yeah. yeah. Get off the fucking computer. Um, so, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it, all of that was fascinating. And, and there's, there's a bunch of games through that early wave of computers um, before I got an Atari ST and was, was playing some more sophisticated games and then a PC. Um, but there's a bunch of games that sort of have a, a magical presence in my mind. Um, Ult Ultima is definitely in that category. Um, <clears throat> I mean, that game's so important for so many so, people. So, so fundamental across so many different gaps, right? And uh, it was Ultima 5 was the one that was really... Uh, kind of life-changing for me. Um, there's a game by Cliff Johnson called, I uh, can't remember what the earliest full game is, but I think it's Fool and His Money, um, which is sort of a graphic adventure. Yeah. Uh, King's Quest was a game that was that was that had a really big impact on me. Um, so all of these things, and, and friends of mine were making video games at school. You know, we were working together to, to build stuff. And I was running a lot of D&D sessions for, for my mates. None of that even conjured up the possibility of working in video games by the time I left high school. But I'd imagine it's also one of those sort of things that you don't necessarily <clears throat> see it around you in terms of you know, the adults in your life that are, that's, it's, it's that's not right. a thing. It, it wasn't a thing and I, I knew nobody who did it and, uh, and it just seemed an impossibility. So I, I went broadly into tech. I was doing some work in hardware um, and despite earlier work, uh, you know, reprogramming basic stuff on a, on a um, Dick Smith computer, I'm not a programmer. My, I'm, I'm technically savvy and capable of working my way around machines, but I'm, I wasn't going to get a job as a programmer anyway. Yeah. Um, but a friend of mine who'd been a brilliant artist in high school, uh, Anthony Clare, Who's, who's gone on to do great things, um, got a job uh, for a company called Dragon Law. And Dragon Law, and, and this will give you a good, um, this will give you a good date stamp on it. They had made a lot of money in CD duplication. And, oh, yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> and as a, as a wealthy CD duplication magnate, they decided they wanted to make video games. Um, and they were doing this while having absolutely no idea how to make video games. So, I mean, that sounds like the old CD Projekt Red sort of story as well. They were doing the same yeah. sort of thing in Poland back in the day and then used that as a platform. Exactly, but with much less skill. Oh, um, yeah. So <laughs> I don't think anybody involved would take offence at that. Um, 
So Anthony worked there as an artist for, for quite a while on, a, on an ambitious project that went nowhere. Um, Anthony did real work there. I, I came in and they asked me to do some design work, but they didn't know what design work was and I didn't know what design work was. So, you know, I just tried to come up with ideas for their stuff. Um, and, and all of that really went nowhere. But it did give Anthony a, a good year or more of experience in uh, in a games company. And, and that led to him getting a job at Irrational, uh, which was really life-changing for him because the people at Irrational actually knew what they were doing. And, uh, An important, and, important point of difference. Yeah, it makes, makes such a difference. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, and even though it was a new studio setting up in Canberra, it was a new studio that was being run by people who'd come in from, from you know, helping to found the the, the original studio, yep. who'd worked for Looking Glass. Um, we the were experience working, was there. That's right. We were working directly with the people on the, the Rob Waters and Ken Levine with the American team, which are directly involved with working on the game. Um, so that was a great uh, opportunity. And they anthony said i should apply to be a designer there that didn't the timing wasn't good because i was running a tech startup at the time um is that and if i have it right uh netizen that is netizen Net boy that is a deep dive so <laughs> linkedin is a really valuable resource there you go yeah so, so netizen was uh, was a startup that had been run by myself and a few other friends um and we were doing we were effectively doing open source consulting for people. So when they yep. wanted to, back in the day before it was easy to pull <clears throat> a uh, e-commerce solution off the shelf, you know, we were building building things for people from parts. Um, yep. And that was a lot of a lot of what was keeping us busy. So, <clears throat> but we ended up folding Netizen after a few years, and uh, from there, you know, I called Anthony and I'm like, ah. How's it going? And he's like, well, we just fired our designer. So, you know, you should have a chat. And uh, and I did. And from there, that, that was my first job in the, my first real job in the industry. And that was, uh, that was a great opportunity. Um, you know, I got to work with Ken. We, we made Freedom Force. Uh, and I, that, you know, while I talk about how Irrational knew what they were doing, and they absolutely did, um, and, and everybody who worked there has gone on to do great things. It, it's, it was a really interesting process because n there's quite a lot of chaos involved in making games that the old-fashioned looking glass way. Yeah. And one of the things that, like the game doesn't come together till the end and you sort of have to trust that all the pieces will come together. And that I could do. But by the time we got to the end of the game, I don't think anybody on that team had any idea if genuinely we'd made a good game or a bad game yeah right whether whether it would rate you know a seven out of ten a two out of ten um whether anybody would buy it we we'd ended up being published by ea because our original publisher had gone pseudo bankrupt along the way and sold off all of their uh all of their pc games to, to ea to be published um it, at no point, and, and again, I feel like the people on the publisher side had a much better idea of where the game was at than us. Um, yeah, okay. I, um, well, that's that experience, right? And also probably 
maybe to your point about not knowing where the game would fit on the spectrum in terms of how it's received, yeah, yeah. there might be that degree of you being almost too close to it that it got a little hard to, to tell, as opposed to the publisher side where they they get this, they get the they updates, get to see a lot of games. they also get to see what else is in development yeah. and how it's how it tracks. That's exactly right. So, um, so from that perspective, it was a very, it was an absolutely terrifying experience, and uh, and once the game came out. It was quite a long wait back then. You know, we finished and then the game gets gold and has to get printed and sent out to stores and magazines have to start getting their reviews out. So it's months and months and months before you hear anything, which is in complete contrast. It's a long time to stew in your juices. Um, But the game was received well uh, and, uh, and people liked it. And this is kind of where the, the point comes in where, you know, I'm I'm very, I feel lucky to have been involved with the industry for as long as I have. Um, I'm glad I started then. I remember when I started that job, you know, there was a real thought that I was just going to go and do it for four or five years and that it would leave me with no skills. Yeah. Um, so I remember saying, gosh, if I want to do anything else, you know, Game design qualifies me for nothing else, right? Like that, yeah, that I, ha- is... I have to be all in. That this has to work out, or I, I've I wasted I, years. Yeah, quote look, unquote. I, and I was quite happy to waste years in my early twenties, right? Like I, that's I, I don't we all? Yeah, that's right. I, I was not the sort of person who had a, a strong idea of what I wanted to do with my life. Yeah, you know, from an early age, um, but I had confidence that um, you know I'd already run a company previously. Um, and so, you know, I had a sense that there's always something to do and the thing that you do next will be a surprise, right? Yeah. Um, but, I, but I also, you know, I was very conscious that I wasn't moving into a stable world with stable opportunities and, and you know, long-term propositions. Yeah. Um, I certainly didn't think I was going somewhere that would end up, you know, sending me around the world and um, and, and giving me a huge number of opportunities to... to meet people and speak to people uh the 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 games industry has been very good to me and it's one of the things i say to young people a lot because i'm I'm sure you get this as well where um people with with kids often say gosh my kids love video games you know they should make video games you know what's your advice and my advice is generally um is that you (laughs) sorry that's my daughter hiding in the background Um, but my advice to kids is is always look look for the thing that you're excited about that the kind of rigid adult world hasn't turned into a factory yet, right? Yeah, like, look look for the thing that isn't a thing yet, and chase that passion for a bit because it might not be a real thing, but you, you never know. Um, unfortunately, at the moment, uh, that seems like cryptocurrency, and, uh, you know. Um, yeah, and that's a weird whole, NFTs, yeah. and uh, but nonetheless, we'll, <laughs> nonetheless, we'll see where that that's, where that's that leads right. us all. Um, but there, there are always there's always an opportunity space that that exists that hasn't yet been um, fully tapped t- turned into a full thing. And I know that the fact that I've been around for 22 years gives me a lot of opportunities. You know, I've been around as long as anybody in Australia yeah. games, just about. Um, and we we still have some super veterans you know, who are who are hanging around, which is uh, which is nice. But but 
there's not, you know, there's a few percent who have been there more than 20 years. Um, and that's got some, that's got some advantages. And, uh, and yeah, I'm very reflective on, on how that's offered me opportunities. So from there, I went to Relic um, to work on the Homeworld franchise Homeworld there. Too, right? yeah. yeah, which was awesome. Um, and again, chaotic, but a very different way of making games, right? Because uh, Homeworld 1 kind of came out of nowhere for them and was made in a similar, very similar way to the way that Irrational make games. And then they tried to make a Homeworld 2 in a similar model and they just ultimately never got anywhere with it. And they were trying, the logic was that Homeworld 1 had been revolutionary in the RTS space and that Homeworld 2 needed to be revolutionary again. <clears throat> and that meant they were trying big, wild things and having difficulty getting them to, to pull together. So that project got cancelled and, uh, and there was a big legal fight with Sierra at the time. And then eventually it came back around to, well, okay, let's, Let's settle all of these legal arguments and try again. Yep. And that's that's where I came on. Um, but Josh Mascara, who later on went on to, to run things uh, for Diablo at Blizzard, um, along with uh, Jay Wilson, who was running the Dawn of War team, um, both had a very reasonable approach to things. And, and, and Josh came in and said, look, what we're doing is we're going to give people an evolutionary homeworld experience, not a not a revolutionary one. We're going to give them more homeworld and we're going to try and work within those bounds, in, in, improve on what's there, build out some new stuff, but not try and reinvent the wheel from scratch. Yeah, I'm with you. And that worked, uh, that worked great. Um, uh, we, the whole process of building it and working with uh, with Rob Cunningham, um, who's amazing and runs Blackbird Entertainment now, and they're doing Homeworld 3 now. Um, it's in really interesting, actually, because a lot of the ideas that didn't work in Homeworld 2 are now part of Homeworld 3. Yeah. Like, I can see that I can see the DNA, DNA and, yeah. and the impact of, like, spending 15 years thinking about these problems and making deserts of Karak along the way. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting uh evolution and i'm so glad to see that come back around because that the the people there really are the heart and soul of homeworld uh rob's rob and aaron and uh and a bunch of the other key people are, are at blackbird these days and and still doing that stuff um so that's that's been super exciting to to watch from the from the outside um yeah, I, i'm sure I, there was a time where you just thought this thing was never going to happen you some of these oh yeah. these key pillars of the game would just never amount to anything yeah. within yeah, that exactly. franchise anyway exactly exactly so so that has been uh, that's been super fun to watch and and uh, and i've enjoyed that and then i went from there to montreal um and i worked, yeah i worked at ubisoft on splitter cell chaos theory yep and that went you know um, I, I'm happy with what I did there, which is I did a lot of work on the um, on the Bark system and the, yep. the AI and the dialogue, um, and that was that was all good stuff. Uh, but I also um, I also did a bit of writing did, as well. Yeah, I did. did uh, primarily, what I ended up doing was writing. I was hired as a, a lead designer, but uh, but I was hired for a console team 
that was supposed to be doing console specific content for, for chaos theory. Um, and then timelines got squashed and we ended up just doing a porting job. Porting job yeah, I wasn't right. very interested in. Uh, I had conflicts with some of the people there and uh, and ended up having to look for a job in Montreal pretty quickly to keep my visa, which yeah, is how right, I ended yeah. up at Behaviour Interactive. And Behaviour Interactive, I made a bunch of games that are, you know, kids licensed games of the old school yeah, Teen style. Titans, Happy Feet, these, um, these sorts of things. Power Rangers, those sorts yep, of things, right? Monster yeah. House, all that sort of stuff. Um, and uh, and that was a surprisingly great experience. What <laughs> so, was it about that made it so so great? Because I mean, I so, guess if you look at it on the kind of community, the the player side, people don't necessarily immediately think, oh, these games like that the, I typically correct. don't even think of are going to be the ones that the developers derive some of the most joy from. And yet, what you're describing now. So, so kind of flies there, the were, face of there were a few things going on that made it good, right? One is it was a really safe environment because it was very professional. Those those studios, you you can't go there trying to create an artistic masterpiece. Um, you yeah. can't go there with the belief that this is the most important thing in the world. You're trying to build something that is satisfying for what is what is also generally a really young audience. And I think young audiences are underserved often by game developers over like we certainly had a lot of developers there who were really who really really wanted to make a hardcore game game and we're going to try and make that regardless of the fact that this is a game for six-year-olds and they you know could barely use the controller um so the so, pushback was constantly hang on no restrain that restrain so that let's that's exactly right and and let's like work with, with young kids let's get a test group in of the people who will play this game and let's see what makes them happy and see how to make them you know, enjoy the experience. Um, so part of it is just the, the kind of professional distance, which is the thing I really needed at the time. But the other thing was Montreal's a lovely city. Um, there was a lot going on that was really positive around that. Um, and I was a good, you know, I'm, I'm a fluent English speaking writer. Uh, I can present in person well. And that meant that because it was the the upper management of the company was largely francophone, but we were pitching to a lot of Western yes. companies. Yeah. I, I got to do a lot of pitching. So I got to do a lot of writing pitches, giving pitches and And learning from that too. And and learning from that process. And and that was a real growth opportunity for me in video games because it poised me perfectly for what would later become a big part of my job, which is dealing with international publishers, pitching, getting people on board. But also, um, I think one of the places that I was able to have the biggest impact in Australia. Let's put a pin in that. I will come back to that story uh, in in a moment. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Then. So, uh, but in any case, that, that gave me a lot of skills that were hugely useful. And, uh, and as I say, it was work, you know, it wasn't... It wasn't work that was ever going to make gamers happy, <laughs> and and it was never going to satisfy gamers. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It was never never going to satisfy the artistic itch that I had when I got into games. Um, I mean, that's that's one thing. You know, the 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 flip side. No, I'm going to put a pin on that too. I'll come back to Ooh. that later. Um, so now we have two pins. Um, I can keep track of two. Let's not go to three. 
<laughs> not without so, not without pulling one of them. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. right. So, um, so yeah, I, I found that a really good experience. It was great preparation to go back to Australia. Uh, my wife and I got married. My wife and I met in Melbourne. You know, we travelled to Canberra for uh, for to work at a rational in my case, and and she was working for Accenture there. She got uh, she got an opportunity to work in North America, which was the motivation for me going over to uh, to sorry she got she got a uh, doctoral offer from Rutgers University. Um, yeah, right. So she got the opportunity to go over there. I went good. You know, I, that sounds great. You should do it. I'll, I'll also go to North America. Get you back on, yeah. That's right. I hadn't quite realised that you know uh, New Jersey and Vancouver are far. <laughs> so they look re- like they look really close on the map. They're both in North America. How far could they be? Um, so uh, we were quite far. Montreal, we were closer, which is good. Um, we got married. We decided we wanted to come back to Australia, and uh, and that's when I joined Pandemic. Pandemic, and, yeah. And Pandemic was a great studio with a really storied history. Um, again, it was a really good opportunity. I was I was leading the design team on a team that really knew what they were doing. So they'd yeah. made Destroyer Humans 1, they'd made Destroyer Humans 2. Um, they had earned the right to build something new. And uh, and that was going on while the, uh, this, this Batman the team was building. Batman. Oh, okay, yeah. No, so we, we weren't making Batman. Uh, there was another team making Batman and we were just pressing on to to build a new IP for the, yeah. for the studio at that time. And there were, this was kind of my introduction to always thinking about the business so my recommendation to anybody who works for a games company is that you should always be thinking about the business and the reason for that is because a lot of big company decisions only are only able to be understood in the context of understanding the business yes so pandemic got a huge investment from bono and the sultan of brunei and other wealthy individuals joined up with bioware and formed a, a massive uh, games conglomerate. And they did that to try and break the uh, tyranny of the publisher model, right? Where you had to shop games around and make a deal with the publisher when you were at your most vulnerable. Um, so they, they got a bunch of money in, they were successful in doing that. And that meant when the time came to, to make a new game, uh, they were looking at the business side and going, wow, the Wii has just blown up. It sold a ton of units, and we're not making fast, any yeah. Wii games. So, uh, so it's the biggest thing in the world, and we should be making a Wii game. Now, it turns out that was a very poor decision um, for reasons that will become that became evident down the line, which was effectively the demographic. The mo- the, well, the, the most two. popular games on the Wii were not big, well, like big AAA style games. Yeah. So, so trying to make a big AAA style game for the Wii was the wrong play. Carnival yeah, the only exception was, was the, the Nintendo developed stuff, really. That's yeah. exactly right. The, the most profitable game, third-party game on Wii was Carnival Games, which was yes. a big bucket of shit, um, but it yes. was cheap. No, no one would <laughs> so, argue that. Yeah. Yeah, um, and once that became clear, the, the position of let's make a big expensive game for Wii um, didn't look as good. But at the time we were told look we have a real we feel like we've got a real vulnerability in our uh, portfolio because we don't have any Wii titles that we're working on we're trying to present as across the board and this new thing has come out and surprised us 
Um, notably, John Passfield at that time was saying, hey, you should look at social web games. We should be doing something there. And yeah, John right. is a John was a lot more clever than anybody else in that room at that time. Head of the curb. Yep. If we had been doing that, that would have really changed the shape of that company. Anyway, um, then uh, it became clear why the portfolio needed diversity because shortly after that we were sold to EA, and uh, and it was all we, part of the sales pitch. Yeah. Um, so and then again with an eye to the business. Uh, we were in a real problem because we were making a $4 million game at that point in time, which was a big spend on the Wii. Um, it could have become an $8 million game, but Batman by comparison was probably a 20 to $40 million game. Yeah. Um, Mercenaries 2 and Saboteur were, were big tens of million dollar games. Um, the question at EA really was, how is this game going to make fifty million dollars? And the answer to that from us always was like, well, it's not. <laughs> so, We're trying you know, to tell you, like, uh, we we didn't spend, you know, twenty five million dollars on it. It's not supposed to be a fifty million dollar game, um, but it'll be profitable. It, it's a it's a good Wii open world action adventure um, that spins on reality TV and you know celebrity uh, nonsense. It's it's I think it's fun. And the team enjoyed working on it. At every at every open demo we did for the, the rest of EA, it went down incredibly every time. Um, but it just didn't fit the sorts of games EA wanted to make. Yeah. EA's only interest was what what's going to move the share price. And you can't move the share and price that's a on what's lightly profitable. Um, so, you know, the Australian studio ended up getting shut down, uh, not because we weren't a good fit, um, although that didn't help. Uh, well, I mean, we had the, things like the global financial crisis going on at the time co- as well. Correct. The um, Australian dollar whole bunch at 120. The, yeah. You know, there's, there's a bunch of different uh, impacts. Batman, uh, the license got removed because the game got delayed too much. Um, the, the secret background there is that Warner had their own Batman game that was starting to look Became great. Arkham, yeah. So that they had no interest in giving extra time to this one that wasn't going well. Yeah. Um, so a, a lot of different factors and the Australian pandemic studio got shut down and then the American studio, I, I got offered a job as a creative director at the American studio, which is really in as much as I understood my career path when I joined, yeah. that was the end goal. The end goal was creative director at a big studio. Um, and I got offered that job and I went over and I looked at everything that was going on at the American studio. and. It didn't. It didn't smell right. Again, I think you've got to look at the business. You've got to look at the business case. Um, and I declined that job and came back to Australia. And uh, that really left me with nothing because there were no. I mean, all the American yeah, as dollar. you said before, the 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 model that we had here in Australia was very very different. It was all about the big companies and their right. their Australian sectors. And with that collapsing all over the place, unfortunately, at the time that those those green shoots weren't there at that particular point in time oh that's exactly right and and it was very hard to see how any of that uh any of that could be could be bypassed and could make sense um so i i came back to australia and i sort of thought about what i was going to do and i I started up a, a consulting organization for a bit 
um, and you know, I, I sort of believed I was going to be a consulting video game designer. And yeah. what I realized is that that wasn't actually the, what anybody was looking for. Um, what I was doing was helping people understand the game business, particularly film people, and understand how they could bring their IP into film. And I, I did quite a lot of work in that, that space for, for a year. Uh, and then we had a few projects that clients wanted to build, and it became worthwhile putting together a studio around them. Um, however, let me pull one of the pins out. This oh, one. good. We've gone full circle. So, awesome. uh, that's right. What, what became really clear is I went to, uh, I went to GDC and I met one of the ex pandemic Australia guys there who'd gone to Singapore and, and helped to set up rat loop, which is a video. Oh, yeah. yep, yep. Um, and, uh, James said to me, uh, he said, you are one of the only people in Australia who's capable, who has the relationships, who knows the people who can bring money into Australia to make games. And, and that business more, understanding again from yeah, before well, too. Yeah. Well, that's right. And you've got a moral obligation to do that. And those are strong yeah. words, especially when you well, add the moral obligation on the end. Well, that's yeah. right. But, but I agreed with him. Um, and I hadn't thought it all the way through at that point in time. But I've always had a big sense of responsibility to, to the people I work with and the people in the broader Australian industry. So that's really, when Defiant started, that was an enormous part of our model. Uh, that We had some fundamental aspects that we were thinking about, right? Which is how do we provide jobs for Australians because there aren't yep. any? Um, how do we provide an ethical and uh, professional work environment? Um, because there needs to be one. And how do we act as a way to bring business not only into our own studio, but into other studios in Australia? Yeah, help, help build the, the scene up again. That's, that's right. And, and for 10 years, that's, that's really what we did um, and, and what we tried to do at each step along the way. Now, while, uh, while you've got that, you know, quote-unquote moral obligation to do that, that's that's a lot of pressure to be taking on as well. Like, how did you, especially in those earliest days of Define, how did you kind of like? There, there's these important pillars that you've just outlined that you want to be made, uh, that you want to reach, and again, yeah. you know, help other people grow. But that is a lot to take on as well. How did you you personally kind of cope with that early days as you're trying to establish these things? And there's lots of you know, people have known things to be a certain way for a long time, and you're looking to upset so, the apple cart a little bit as well. So I think one of the ways. Um... So what I wanted to be was a creative director. And, and the reason for that is because I saw that a creative director's role, as I understood it, was to imagine something that doesn't exist and Realize it. Uh, believe in it enough to get it to exist. So to believe in it enough to convince other people to help walk them along the way yeah. and, and to have a clear enough vision to, to guide people to that. Um, the answer to your question is sort of the the same, uh, which is I had a really clear vision of of what I wanted Australia to look like and what I wanted other people to be able to do and how I wanted, you know, um, and and really how I wanted people to, to be able to live and work inside Australia. And yeah. the best way to do it was to embody it, um, but also to talk about it. And, and thirdly, to... I think the thing I did more than anything else, possibly 
the thing I did almost as much as talking constantly to everybody all the time in public and in private um, was to ask people what they needed and listen to the answer. Um, so an enormous part of what I was doing wasn't anything clever or anything um, difficult. It was as simple as asking people what they needed, listening, and then going, oh, I know somebody who has that. But I, I still argue the like the listening component can be still a massive challenge. Like people can come in with that intent, and you know it's really honourable intent. But listening and versus active listening, I guess this is a degree of my teaching kind of coming out here. But like that, <laughs> act, that active listening and really digesting what is what what is the core of what this person is trying to say, and yeah. not allowing your own biases to kind of infiltrate that and and kind of twist it a little bit. Not again through any sort of malicious intent. No, one hundred percent. But uh, like that, that can be a real challenge, and it's something that a lot of people struggle with, no matter the profession they're in. Um, let alone I, I, with the pressures that essentially you were taking on in a lot of ways as well. Yeah, I, I think as uh, I I have some training in active listening skills, which certainly helped. Um, I uh, <laughs> one of the earliest talks I gave was with uh, with John Passfield at Pandemic, <clears throat> and somebody asked how we resolve things and i basically said look i've done a lot of couples therapy <laughs> which which helps right um and i think i think that's to some you extent that's my circumstances yeah to, to to some extent that's my answer in a lot of these contexts right it's like i've, I've done a lot of my own work <laughs> yes. so, um and and i've done a lot of training in active listening and i've, I've done a lot of uh, I've got a lot of experience in asking those questions. Uh, listening is so important and so fundamental. And I'm, I'm always aware when I'm talking to people who don't listen. So, yeah, I, I think that's good. And the, the thing, the interesting flip side to this is I don't know. Uh, I know that there are a lot of people in the games industry who have felt heard when they spoke to me. And I'm sure that there are other people who felt told and that choice has often depended on where I felt people were at in their yeah. own journey and what what the best, what the most sensible thing for me to say to them is. Um, so, but but as I say, it, it was, it didn't seem hard. There, there were yeah. an enormous number of people who had a, a real desire to be heard on what their, their concerns and needs were, um, but equally, their concerns and needs didn't seem as pressing from where I stood because I knew people who could service those needs. I knew yeah, people who, who could, I could connect them with. Um, and that, that was just, that's, that wasn't hard. That wasn't a lot of pressure. That was just a joyous experience because day in, day out, you're helping people do stuff that they thought wasn't going to happen. And you're like, Oh, you need to talk to person X. They, they're great. You know, they're experts, this, is an, yeah. this is an excellent concept artist. This, these people have money for these sorts of projects. These people are doing this. If you get together, something we can make magic. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And and um, I just say that was a really rewarding time to be to be doing that sort of work. And we were making our own games. We were, we were up in Brisbane, uh, which meant that you know Melbourne had a very intensive games network. Oh, and, for sure. And I, I think and a lot still of people. Does in a lot of ways. Oh, that's that's right, and I think a lot of people were overwhelmed by the the interrelationships. Brisbane was a lot more low key, which meant that I tended to talk to people on their own terms and less in the big social morass as well, which was which was nice. Um, but yeah, I, I 
I don't think um, I don't think every decision I made would be universally applauded, but I think in general I was able to help uh, a, a lot of people um, do stuff they wanted to do, and, and it was a really rewarding period for me. Yeah, I can imagine, and uh, I think that's reflected again. Without you know, one, I don't want to sound like we're pumping the tires too much here or anything, <laughs> anything like that, but I think that's reflected in the 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 multitude of guests that have come on the show over the, over the years and have cited you as being a really important influence upon them. And uh, it'll make it all the more fascinating when we get to that same sort of question for you towards the end of the show. Yes. Uh, but yeah, I think that really shows. And again, I think you described it very well and it is, there's, there's a degree of my teacher sort of qualifications kind of kicking in and yeah, knowing, and I think that even extends to parenthood as well as kind of knowing when to lead when to listen, when to instruct, when like, and finding yeah. that sweet spot looks different from person to person. That's right. But having that knowledge that you had of, okay, here's the person that can assist here, here's the person that can assist here, you're looking for this person, that really helps as well. And I guess Absolutely. despite all of that stuff, and obviously it's incredible, somewhere along the way you were able to make your own video game still. Yes. <laughs> well, look, and, and there are two aspects that really made that happen. Um, one is that I had an excellent team um, and day by day, my job has always been to help people on the team do great stuff. I, yep. That's that's what I see as the, the role of a studio head or a game runner or a creative director. Yeah, it's you're, facilitating you're, the creatives below you to, to fulfill. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, and, and making sure that all the people that you work with have an opportunity to contribute what they do well and are supported around the things that they that they have difficulty with. Um, so I didn't make any games, um, but the, the team made a lot of great games and I, mean, I was able to have a good influence on, on those and, and help those to make those happen. Yeah. Um, but the other thing is that that was... To me, those are both faces of the same conversation in a lot of ways. So, you know, you actually need to make the games because that is the place that you test your ideas against reality. Um, yeah. So to, to some extent, it's, it's the same as, um, you know, <laughs> it's the same as having a lot of theories about spaceflight, but also occasionally you have to send rockets up. Um, so, <laughs> just to kind of prove what you're onto. Yeah, that's exactly right. Hopefully, and, hopefully, prove, uh, hopefully what prove what you're onto, and sometimes explode. Um, so that was that was the the um, the furnace in which we kind of purified and tested the ideas, and and it was a place where we could meet up with the reality of the industry as well um, to make sure that we weren't offering people hollow advice. There are today. Um, some coaches in the video game space who've never really done any uh, game development work and, and they have interesting and useful things to offer but it's, it's a different set of questions to, to the to the ones that come Stem up from those with experience yeah that's exactly right it's, it's just a so so that was good and also I got into this business to make creative work and this is where I'll take the second pin off the uh, off the board. You've done this um, brilliantly. <laughs> so and now we're okay to put the third one in. So. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. We we can come back to some more. So to to take the second pin off the board, the thing I was reflecting on earlier is that when I was young, I was 
passionate about the creative and artistic potential of, of video games. That's how I came into video games. Yep. Um, I, I came into video games and, and you can probably find quotes from me in 2002 or thereabouts saying that I, I, I think that video games uh, is the preeminent unexplored art form that exists at this point in time. There is more to be discovered there and, and worked out than, uh, than anywhere else, and it's the most exciting place to be. And that, that is how I felt in 2002. Come 2012 or so, when, when we were starting to find, what was important to me was to build a studio that could sit in the centre of, you know, three separate circles. So a Venn diagram that's described by the things that we have the capacity to make, the things that will be that the market wants or that will be profitable, um, and the things that we're excited about. And there's yep. quite, quite a narrow central intersection yeah, the Venn diagram is... <laughs> that's that's right and uh and of course by the time we got to defiant we were I'd, I'd had 10 years of quite commercial game making you know um freedom force freedom force and homeworld are, are both really fun premium ips that that are good that, that do good things but um even though irrational made freedom force freedom force is not the bioshock of the uh, of the world it's, it's not pushing the artistic model forward um i think the original home world did but, but the second home world iterated on that uh, uh splinter cell again i think was a great example of triple a games at the time um the very commercial work that i did at a2m set a base for that but by the time i got to 2012 i had uh i had a concern about trying to find games that would keep people's livelihood at stake yeah. and that that changed the sort of games i made and this is where that pin comes off right which is i i do wonder if i had been entering the industry at the rise of the indie world what games i would be making oh, because, yeah, I, yeah. because i wouldn't be making games that were commercial um because i i came in with a lot of excitement about the artistic potential and a lot of things to say um would i have gone out of business 10 times entirely possible yeah, yeah, yeah who knows <laughs> so it's a beautiful thing um, about experience and then even in these correct. conversations retrospect right that's that's right so so you know my one sadness is that um while i'm really happy you know if i never uh if i never make another game as personal as hand of fate um and as as impactful as, as hand of fate uh i won't be sad because there's a lot of me in that game there's a lot of the team in that game as well but there's a lot of me and and That's i awesome feel like i feel like my voice is very strongly there and i feel like it resonated with people and uh yeah, it absolutely and, did i had a great and, time with it I, yeah I, I, i'd be remiss if i didn't shout out player two editor-in-chief matt houston as yes. one of the most vocal fans of the franchise that i yeah. i think i've come across yeah no we and and that's been i mean that's been the exciting thing too the, the ability to do the first one and work out what we were building and the second one and kind of finish saying what we want to say on yeah. that on that topic has been has been excellent so um so that's i'm, I'm not sad that that's the game I'm most associated with at this point in time. However, however, I, I still have a uh, wanky artistic masterpiece in me, and 
Uh, is that what a world in my attic was going to be or at some point? Or? So a world in my attic was, um, a world in my attic was going to be to, that was more of a love letter to children, um, yeah. as, as a, as a father at the time, but also to children more broadly, that was my, I would really love to be the Jim Henson of video games. Um, yeah, understood. as opposed to the, the David Lynch, um, <laughs> or the Philip K. Dick, you know, if, if, if we want to get into uh, brass tacks. Um, so, but yeah, that was, that was a game driven by a passion. So I, I spoke earlier about the fact that we were making low budget games for kids because that was when I was at HOM, what happened is companies bought a license for a movie that was coming out. They didn't really know how the movie was going to do, but they knew the studio was spending a bunch of money on it. They, put the minimum amount of money into it because that game would sell depending on how the the movie sold. Yeah, it was so, yeah, 100% driven yeah, by the, yeah. the core product. Exactly. If Monster House is a flop, then the game's only going to sell 100,000 units. If, but whatever, uh, we didn't invest that much, so there's no real co- harm done. Yeah, correct. Yeah. But, uh, but if Happy Feet blows up, uh, then you're going to sell a lot of Happy Feet stuff. It, it, was a, it was a job that was much more like making Happy Meal toys than it was about creative work and and the quality difference we always tried to make the best thing we possibly could the best but the, toys. But, yeah. but the difference between the best and the worst was zero in terms of sales impact um yes. so world in my attic was an attempt by me to make something that gave children a game that treated them as the humans they are and treated them with respect so i i grew up with movies like labyrinth dark crystal and jumanji and uh and Indiana Jones and, and you know, a whole bunch of different movies that are simultaneously terrifying and are about sitting on this uh, in this liminal space between adulthood and childhood. And yeah, they embrace that. That's that's right, and they embrace a world that is that is crazy and complex and uh, and as I say, and scary. So. You know, we but then really deliver in a way that is still it. somehow accessible. Exactly. To a and, younger demographic. And a big part of the model at uh, at Defiant was that we always wanted to take, we always wanted every game to be doing something new and in some way building on what we'd built before. Yep. So Hand of Fate came out of the fact that we did a Diablo-style mobile game called uh, called Heroes Call. Yes. Um, and we learned a lot in that process and we learned a lot about the sort of narratives we wanted to tell and we learned a lot about randomization and um and a lot of those were the things that drove the questions we were asking at the start of hand of fate and the sort of game we made so we came out of hand of fate and we're like well what if we were building a big 3d world but you're building it out of cards and tiles and it's like a board game that you play but then it becomes a zelda style world that you explore and uh and in so doing um how can we build this as a as a fun crazy you know, enthralling to children, accessible world. Yeah. And uh, I think that's something that Zelda does quite well, but uh, but our spin on it would have been quite different and quite a lot darker, but still for kids. Um, unfortunately, and this is kind of where the Defiant story wraps up, uh, unfortunately, yeah, unfortunate it, was, end. it was a big, expensive game to make. Um, I wasn't really interested in trying to make little small games for better or worse um 
we we wanted to be ambitious. We felt the time was right to make the transition to being a bigger studio. Uh, and we had a lot of interest, but nobody came over the line. But that whole process did cost us a lot of time and a lot of money. Um, and and in the end, we got to a position where it didn't make sense to to continue on. We had to look at what the ethical ways are to, to wrap up development at the studio, um, make sure everybody was taken care of, do our, do our best to make sure that people landed in, in good positions. And, uh, and that was a terribly sad time in my life because I, I, I mean, one thing that I'm aware of in myself that is not, um, <laughs> not necessarily, not necessarily my most healthy trait, but I, I do, I do feel responsible for people. I feel responsible for people across the, the broad Australian industry. And I felt responsible for the people we worked with to provide them with a livelihood yeah. for eternity. Um, but I think when you're the founder and, of a studio, I think it's, it, it, it makes a lot of sense as to why you would have that level of ownership or feel that responsibility. There yeah, too. that's right. And, uh, and, and people should, I mean, I think I if you don't, you, you're detached like that, that could be problematic I, I, as well. I, I will tell you, I get mad when I see studio heads do things uh, that I think are irresponsible um, for, for their studios. So I, I have plenty of judgment for, for the way other people do it. Um, but we did we did the best we could and it didn't pan out. And, uh, and that's, I think, you know, in poker, sometimes you can have a great hand and the, the cards just don't fall the, the way you should. Technically speaking, you should have made the bet. Technically speaking, you would have won sixty percent of the time, and yeah. uh, but the, the play didn't come out. And in the end, that's that's sort of how things wrapped up there. And that was a very tough time. Um, however, one of the things that came from that is when we were looking at Weldon Mayavik, one of our um, team members, James, uh, was excited about going back to the Freedom Force well. And I said to him at the time that I didn't think it was the right game for the team, right? Like I, yeah. I, I thought it was a good idea. Um, and I, you know, I was excited about that from a career full circle perspective. And James had loved Freedom Force, which is why he was excited about it. Um, but I just didn't see that as a good fit for everybody at the uh, time and place at, at, the, at, at the team. Yeah. That's right. So um, after the studio shut down, James came to Dan and I and he said, look, I know that I pitched that superhero game in the context of the studio and therefore you own it, um, but I'd like to make it. And we said, oh, yeah, of course. You know. Yeah, we never got in anybody's way on anything. There's a lot of ways big companies try and get in people's way. And we tried to stay out of people's way. As yeah, much you'd as have possible. the ability to if you really wanted to, but that's, 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 that's right. counter to everything else we've discussed so far. Exactly. So, uh, so we said, look, go for it. That's great. Do it. Um, and then Dan, uh, who's my business partner in Defiant and co-founder and, uh, and technical director and producer, uh, Dan was like, cool, I'll, well, I'll help. And, uh, and Sean, who was our art director, was like, well, I won't look, I'll help. And uh, all of a sudden, and all of a sudden um, they were making a game. And the, the truth of the matter is that, uh, you know, I've, I've helped from the early days on that project, but I'm, I'm not working um, full time on it because I'm doing a lot of parenting and uh, and I've been kind of trying to try to sort out what I'm doing with my own uh, life in the post-defiant model. 
Um, but pretty quickly, it was clear that something was going on there and they quickly got the lead designer Cade on board from, yep. uh, from Panda Fate. Um, and before we knew it, uh, there was a team making a game and, and that's sort of how Kate's came about. And for, for the last couple of years, uh, initially working out of the old Defiant offices because we had a year of lease on that space that was doing nothing. Um, May as well cash it in, right? <laughs> correct. It was, God, it was, no it was sense good, to be, good to be able to work there and good to have a year to pack up all of my shit. <laughs> so, so it took a little bit longer than you expected? Took, I had a lot of board games in there. <laughs> so... Um, and the the truth is really that the current model is that I, I work for that team, which is very refreshing um, and is good because they're keeping me honest. Um, but also Dan and I are helping on the publishing side. We're helping to, to yep. use the reach that we've got through Defiant. Yeah, that experience, experience yeah. we've got there um, and to help provide some resources behind them to, to get it over the line. But it's been just a lovely project to work on because uh, because everybody involved is a super veteran. And while I've been working on the story and narrative side, um, the game's really been driven by James and Kate and Sean. And that's so refreshing from, from my perspective. It's nice to be in the game, but not, uh, not responsible for the business side of it, not responsible for the, for the kind of day in, day out of the, the whole process. But even um, again, I mean, from what we were discussing before and the number of people that you've interacted with and they've kind of gone off and done some fantastic things, you know, with, with some of your influence, they're backing them. In this case, there's there's a degree of that going on, but you get to be there to witness how, yeah. like, how they've adopted some of those ideas and how they've built and refined and tweaked and what, what ha- you know, and learnt from that's, that's exactly haven't, right. haven't worked. So I'm sure there's a yeah. lot of uh, satisfaction and um, even learning for yourself that you can derive from what they've learned. That's exactly right. It's been yeah, it's been experience. incredibly rewarding, and I've also had the opportunity to help out a couple of other projects in small ways along the way as well. The thing about Defiant is that it was all consuming, and that meant that while I was able to, you know, talk to people and mentor and and help all the way along, um, when it came down to the things that I can do pretty simply, you know, where people are like, "Oh, look, can you?" edit you know a bunch of uh, a bunch of stuff here or can you can you help punch up the dialogue here or you can you yep. write us some some dynamic stuff over here or can you help write a pitch um those are things that didn't used to be able to do and over the last couple of years i've been able to do some of that for people and that's been really fun as well no that's 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 awesome and i guess you you did mention there obviously yeah you've kind of touched base with other studios along the way and i guess for anyone you know tuning into the show and again kind of pouring through the uh the linkedin as we discussed before <laughs> you know people will know the likes of hollow knight void bastards windbound forgotten city and they're just some recent examples as well of yes. you know in the last few years of, of developers and games that you've been yeah. in some way and i'm sure various different capacities that's that's exactly right so involved with uh, and that's uh, like sharing that experience and that that knowledge has i'm sure been incredibly helpful for for those teams too yeah it's always it's always very kind when people choose to to publicly credit uh the influence you've had whether it's through as you were saying through talking in interviews like this through uh through in credits and yeah. and updates online um you know it's just it's such a kind 
tip of the hat and it's always very humbling um and and it's it's always i mean australian games are ace <laughs> and it's oh, so man. nice it's Punch so nice so to be far above our league. it is redonkulous and uh and it's just so it is so nice when people are like well, what do you think about this and i know you know the healthiest thing for me in my creative development going back a long time now because again old but the healthiest thing was when i realized that it's okay to work with people as sounding boards it's okay to share ideas early on and yeah. have input and being surrounded by a great creative community is really the, the most rewarding thing so you know i share pictures around early with uh, with a bunch of other studio heads and, and people that i talk to and what do you think of this and you know bash the corners off ideas early on it's a great part of the process and and i'm you know lucky enough to be able to, to be part of it do that exactly and I'm, I'm lucky to be able to do that for some other people as well and so we've we've danced around it for a while we haven't really gone full pr speak in a little while yeah, yeah. Stage, but, uh, <laughs> we are at that point where we you know we can talk about uh spitfire and capes and yes. the actual the, the game itself and I guess one of the the things that's been bubbling around in my mind since the game was announced, and we've we obviously spoke about a world might act just before, yeah. is there is there any of that DNA that you kind of see or have tried? Uh, you know, obviously you're not working as the head of the project, but like yeah. you kind of see in capes at all. Obviously oh yeah, vastly vastly different games in a number th- of ways. But I think people will play capes, and I mean, I think people will play capes and. Uh, and they will take away a few things from it, just from a where's the DNA perspective. Um, one is I think they'll play capes, and I, I don't think anybody can tell that four people made that game. Um, four or five, depending on yeah, which time. time, time. And, yeah. and a few few other contractors who've helped out. But holy moly, is that an amazing-looking game. Uh, oh, yeah. That, 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 that team is really demonstrating just how incredibly world-class they are. Um, so, and this is the thing we used to run into a lot at Defiant, which is it just looks like a real one. <laughs> and and therefore it's going to be judged as a real one. And uh, and nobody's going to look at it and go, let's let's rate this as a as a four-person game. They're just going to go, let's rate this as a, as a game. And I think it will do... Yeah, stick it alongside the most the, the most heavily financed titles out there. And, correct, yeah. correct. And, and, and that is... And I think it will stand up in that context. Um, and I think people will look at it and they will go, oh, I feel that the creative people behind this and inside this, I understand people made this and yeah. I can hear their voice come through. And that's something that I've always tried to, to bring across in the, the Defiant titles. And I, I think, you know, you can see Cade's influence on the game. You can, you can you can feel the ways in which James has helped shape it. Visually, it, it looks like a Sean game. Yeah. Um, and that, that I think is, uh, that I think is great. So yes, I think people will look at it and they'll go, Oh, I understand. I understand. I don't think people will look at it and go and I understand that the lineage here, but I understand that this is a, this is a new studio of people who help make things that I love. And I, and the reason people loved Hand of Fate was because they could feel the love in there and they could feel it was made for a very specific person. Yes. And and if you were that person, Hand of Fate was a game that said, 
I understand you, I get you, let's go on a ride together. And Capes is the same, but it's for a slightly different person because it's a it's a comic book game about comic books, right? It's superheroes, but it's it's not cinematic superheroes. It's comic book superheroes. And it's got a slightly different tack on things. Um, there is a there is a story I can tell that explains the genesis of this game, I think. Yeah, please um, do, because I think for most people listening, the game is still that's what only a few months now that mm-hmm. the, the game's actually been kind of. Oh, yeah, I think we only announced it a so, month ago. Yeah, so, I've lost um, track. Time's still a flat so, circle. I still feel like it's <laughs> Oh, yeah, 100%. Circles are also flat circles, to be to be fair. That's that's an excellent point. Um, <laughs> you've blown up that saying for me. I'll never use it again. But uh, yeah, obviously, I mean, in some ways, it still feels like twenty twenty. So the, the time is completely ridiculous. lost on me at this stage. But it's yeah, has it only been a month now? Wow. Yeah. So so Capes is a superhero tactical combat game, um, and as I say, it tells the story of a, a group of. Uh, plucky youths trying to take back the city from the supervillains who've taken it over. Yeah. Um, and I'm most qualified, I guess, to, to talk about the narrative of the game. Uh, it, it's a game about how you exist in a world where powerful people don't want to recognise your existence or your life. Um, and And it's a game that's fundamentally about the questions of what is the old guard's responsibility and uh, and what can they offer to to youth um, and these these are questions that I think a lot about you know I think I think a lot about the the responsibilities of the generations that came before I think a lot about the the global situation that we're in I think about the ways that that power interacts and uh, and hopefully the game has something to say about that and i i think that's one of the things that comic books in the late 80s coming out of the uk did for me is that they they helped to posit a world that talked about the real goings on that, that yeah. talked about uh life under you know thatcher and reagan that, that talked about uh what the what the interpersonal concerns would be so um so i guess if freedom force was a a a loving tribute to the silver age of comics this is hopefully a loving tribute to uh to the 80s and 90s um and it pulls in a bit of that um pulls in a bit of the the frank miller and the alan moore and the, the darker side of comics that uh that was flowing through all the Vertigo line, but it also pulls in a bunch of the Chris Claremont X-Men big soap opera, um, because I think human stories about human relationships are interesting, and uh, and I'm kind sure. of passionate about getting those into to games where I can. Um, and I've got to say, my mum's a, a lover of comics, especially from that era. So I think I'll awesome. be when the time comes, I'll be uh, sliding over. Slowing up some money, saying, "Here, this one's on me." Awesome, I, awesome. Yeah, that, no, that, I, that'll speak to that that tone, that era of yeah of, of comic books. That ticks. So I, I'm ticking boxes in my head, going, "Ah, oh, this is this is for her," and she she does enjoy um, games as well. She's kind of dropped off a little bit as she spent a lot of yeah. the last decade kind of traveling a bit. Yes, but yeah. um, I think uh, this will be one of those ones that I'll no. Now here's the control. Yeah. Sit down. Time to. <laughs> Time to reintroduce yourself to this medium for a while. That's, that, that'll be fun. Um, 
And yeah, as, as I say, I, I think, you know, comic books are so dominant everywhere at the moment. Uh, oh. Marvel owns everything. And when we, you know, when James first pitched that we should do a superhero game, that was before the Marvel Cinematic Universe had eaten everything. Um, and I was like, eh, not so much. Um, Is and then that a few... worry because you can get swallowed up? And... So when we started the game... That was a big worry for me. I'm like, look, how is there enough room for stuff outside the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Because and... I, I'm even of the mind that, and admittedly, you know, the, the scope and level of financing is still very different, but I, mm. I feel like that's why, you know, PlayStation, for example, hasn't gone back to something like Infamous. Yeah. Because no, they've I... got Spider-Man in their own four worlds, but uh, but then Correct. there's, there's Marvel everywhere, there's DC everywhere, and, you know, yeah. what, what does it mean for a little disconnected, franchise uh, about a superhero that no one knows about unless you've played the game in the first place i think you're exactly right and i think this is this comes to the sort of questions that i was talking about uh earlier um which is to say big companies care about things that'll make them hundreds of millions of dollars and needle, right yeah. um uh, we we will be going up against uh midnight suns which is the XCOM team making a marvel game yeah. And and there's a really simple reason that the XCOM team are making a Marvel game. It's because XCOM games, which are 100% best-in-class, world-class games, don't make enough money. Yeah, they don't reach that, a ton of people, yeah. That, that 2K cares. They are great games. They make a ton of profit. They, they are huge successes, but they're not big enough. And once so, you stick the Marvel license on it, though, that changes so, the picture of things correct. completely. Correct. So it's the attempt to make that. I mean, we, we used to see this with uh, EA used to have a reputation for buying companies and, and shutting them down. Activision's done a lot of the same. A lot of the big studios have. But the truth is that they all do it for exactly the same reason, right? Yeah. Which is they all do it because they are trying to work out how to create things that are billion dollar franchises. Yes. And and along the way, they're happy to, to murder seven hundred million dollar franchises getting one of them up to the billion dollar level yes. and i hate that model <laughs> because uh, i oh, i think so much that, creativity that gets snuffed uh, in the process co correct and i think there's a there are big compromises that happen when you're trying to make a billion dollars and i think the truth of the matter is that most things that have made a billion dollars didn't set out to make a billion dollars um so but the, we have the a core wonder... was pure and then it became something after the fact co co yeah. correct and we have a wonderful opportunity, which is we don't need to make a billion dollars. Um, and we can live, you know, if if uh, if the big players out there are the towering gum trees and, you know, th there's still plenty of room for small shrubs underneath and, yep. and smaller trees and a whole ecosystem, but we are tiny. We, we will get by if we're a little mossy patch on the bottom of one of the uh, one of the trees, and and that is freeing because it lets us be honest and strange and you know pure and uh, and uncommercial while at the same time trying to be you know polished but but specific about what we're doing. So keeping the scope down to the place where we can where we can do it well. Um, I'm I'm really proud of, of what we've made so far, and I'm you know I'm incredibly impressed at, at what the the rest of the crew have done, and uh, and yeah, as I say, it's a story. <clears throat> when we did Freedom Force, 
we were we were doing our tribute to Silver Age, and that was what Ken Levine had grown up on, and Rob Waters, and um, it, it came from that passion. Yeah. But but when I was writing it, and I, I knew those comics well, um, but they weren't they weren't my comics. You know, my comics were the the, the well, Claremont X Men, yeah. and uh, and then getting into the '90s Vertigo, and I just had this absolutely clear vision of what a Freedom Force two could be that I, I pitched around at the end of Freedom Force, which is again taking that step forward. You can come back, you know, twenty years later, you can have a grizzled Minuteman who who was the you know Stars and Stripes hero of, uh, of Freedom Force. Yeah. Um, you can have a, a grizzled Minuteman who's been through some shit, who's coming in with his tattered costume and his since like his Frank Miller style, you know, Dark Knight yeah, version. The grizzled, uh, yeah. I, I, I could see that clearly. And of course, Marvel Cinematic Universe has got to that place um, with, uh, with Captain America. And, you know, the, that to me was an exciting story to tell next. Uh, instead, um, Freedom Force versus the Third Reich was a was a sensible next project because it was more like an expansion pack, and it, it, yeah. you don't want to re, reinvent the, the wheel. Yeah. Well, exactly, you don't want to reinvent the wheel for that. And but a Freedom Force two has been something that you know I know Ken's given a lot of thought to over the years, and it's some and that vision. I I had a vision of the intro of that game um, of this shadowed Frank Miller Minute Man with his torn costume and broken staff stepping out of the alleyway and uh and being back um that clear visual image has stuck in my mind uh ever since so in a lot of ways this this project does justice to those stewings over the years do you you find yourself i don't know how often you find yourself in conversations with ken does the conversation ever come up about you know the what or does it still come up about what if well so I've, I've had great conversations with Ken and, and both Ken and John Che, who was the other founder of Iterational and, and ran the uh, yes. Australian studio, um, who's also... He comes up somewhat regularly as well. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's, John is great. Um, so oh, my hit list to talk to as well. Oh, he, yeah, John is, John is great and super smart. Um, uh, so I spoke to both of them when we started this project to say, hey, you know, with, with all respect, this is what we're doing. Um, and, you know, I know Ken still owns the Freedom Force IP. That was one of the things in the, the big blow up um, when he left 2K and then came back under the wing. When he left, he, he took the Freedom Force IP with him. He was like, that's the thing I want to take with me. So I know Ken has thoughts and we haven't, I've tried to keep him abreast of what we've been doing respectfully while not trying to push my ideas into his head because I know yeah. he's carrying around his own um his own idea of what yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, and but yeah, there's there's a there's an incredible amount of love for and from both those guys. Um, and every time we've spoken about stuff, uh, we're all we all get excited about the same stuff, right? So Void Bastards was probably my favourite game of the year that it came out. Oh, I, I love, so entertaining that game. I love feels every choice like they made. That's right. I, there are so many questions that have been answered cleverly and it reeks of that thing I was talking about, right, which is sitting with the things you've made in the past and thinking about how to put them together in a different way and how to refine that and how to take some yes. of the things you know and put them with other things. Um, and and every member of that team 
is bringing their history to that game and you can feel it in in the kind of architecture um yeah. so I, I love i love everything about that and uh and yeah so so yes I, the short answer to that is that uh we're all abreast of what we're doing but we try not to dig too deep into the details <laughs> for fear of muddying things up right no that's and that's fair enough too yeah so and will be incredibly fascinating obviously ken's got his own irons in the fire at the moment that will yes. eventually be revealed to the world but um, he's, he's got a big secret game that i know nothing about but i, I know some people working on um and uh and yeah i'm super excited to see what what comes of all of that yeah, it'll be fascinating when the time comes, whenever that time yeah. may be. Yes, that's right. But uh, in the meantime, yeah, you get to you get to work on you know titles like Capes and do some really fascinating things. So exactly. So thank you for sharing a little bit of insight into that project. There's obviously a, a few things that have been said about it in the in the last month yeah. or so. Apparently, apparently a month, not two to three months like I, like <laughs> I thought. But uh, well, and and let me do a final promo pitch, which is please uh, Steam Next Fest is coming up shortly. Um, the demo will be there for Fantastic. people to get hands on. Um, this is a polished up demo of some of the things we're showing at uh, at Gamescom at the start of August. Um, so uh, I really, you know, encourage people to, you know, get hands on, take a look, um, see if they see if it's interesting for them, and uh, and if it is, you know, please. Drop us a wish list. Wish That's list. the best way of helping us be visible through the the, uh, the wonderful algorithms. algorithms that are out there and uh, making sure that people see it. I think one thing I'm excited about is looking at Steam at the moment. Um, I think Steam is doing a great job of getting games that to people that want to play them. And, uh, and they seem to be having a real success with that. Even when the games are strange and esoteric and, and unusual, they're still managing to find a lot of people we're looking for that the exact is, thing. Correct, yeah. correct. And that I think, you know, I watched the way um, uh, the fabulous BAFTA winning unpacking uh, did. And I think that was not only a huge success, it was a huge validation that Steam can provide an audience for a game that isn't a classic down the line, you know, hardcore game. It's not game. a shooter. It's not, yeah. Yeah. And for the first few years of Steam, it was clear they could provide you an audience if you were making a game for Steam players. And now I think they're, they're proved that they uh, can provide audiences for games pretty Far much regardless. Diverse. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, and yeah, we, um, uh, we encourage people to hit up the Steam page, hit the wish list button, you know, juice all of that as much as humanly possible. Check it out, see if you like it, um, and let us know what you think because we are uh, feedback is very useful. So. Yeah, hundred um, percent. If you've got the means, make sure to make sure to do so and check the game out because yeah, Next Fest is close. I don't know if they've publicly announced the. Date. Yeah, I don't know what the dates yeah, are, but people but, should keep their eyes out over the next. Yeah, I've been getting without spilling the beans. I've been getting you know, <laughs> press releases about other games that are popping up in Next Fest, yeah. and so when they start raining in, it's usually not too far away. So. Yeah. Um, Stay tuned for that one when the opportunity comes. Exactly. As we start to wrap things up for uh, for our conversation here, it's been a fascinating one. Um, I guess a few things that cycle back to you more specifically. Is there anyone out yeah. there, and this is where you've been cited so many times over the journey, so I'm curious to see how you take this. Is there anyone out there who's really inspired you in particular in the way you go about your work, continues to, that you look at from afar, whatever the case might happen to be, someone that you've potentially worked I with? Mean, 
that that yes. can be taken in so many different so, directions, of course. So, so suits. It, it's interesting, right? Because there are a number of names that come uh, immediately to mind. Um, uh, <clears throat> I spoke of uh, John Che and Ken Levine, who I worked with at Irrational, who've uh, had an, an I, I would say, a formative uh, influence on me and my work uh, yes. throughout. Um, I've I've been lucky enough to engage in in long conversations with with peers. Uh, Josh Mascara, who was the lead at uh, at Relic when I was there, Rob Cunningham, who was the the art lead and you know, runs uh, runs Blackbird now. Um, the the many many other studio heads that I talked to, the crew at League of Geeks, um, Dave Goldfarb over at uh, over at the Outsiders, yeah, who've just released, uh, yeah. yeah, that's right. Um, uh, these are these are all people that I am lucky enough to speak to regularly, um, and where I get an incredible amount from from that interaction. Um, but if if we want to go back to to formative kind of touchstones that i that i returned to over my entire life really it's it's my grandmother um oh, and and my grandmother has um so along with my grandfather they train horses in country victoria they, they are yep. harness racers from uh, from way back um my grandfather started harness racing in his 20s uh passed away in his uh, in his 80s a few years ago um, and for for that 60-year career uh, he and his his wife my grandmother have run that farm raised family uh, he's out there during the day working and doing the things he likes and she's always been the social uh, business and communication head the connecting of, thread, that, yeah. of that household uh, she's got 14 grandchildren, 19 great grandchildren. Um, there is a there is an army that descends on that house on the regular. Many of them still live in in the same town that that we grew up in, and uh, at every point, uh, she's treated every single human being who comes in that door with love and respect, and whoever they are she's found a way for them to be a useful and engaged member of the community and that's fantastic if there's one thing i think is missing in kind of today's corporate world it's it's that we spend an enormous amount of time just looking for the ways in which people can be fit into the shape that we have to offer um and i, I if there's one thing that i would you know like to take into my life each day it is that meeting people at the door uh trying to understand who they are and trying to find a place for them yeah, to embracing do things. someone's skill set and that's right that and into the dna of what you're trying to build as exactly to and their value and the things comply. they love yeah exactly and and um and that's you know that's been an incredible uh an incredible gift to me in a very unstable and chaotic life uh, that central stability has existed throughout the entirety of it and it's uh it's been a big part of what's made me who i am today so no that, that's a fantastic one and i'm thrilled that uh 
I mean, we, we have so many people talking about, you know, other developers or whatever, and obviously you cited plenty of people that you've worked with along the way there. I don't think we've had a grandmother, and I mean, that's really profound, though, what you were able to share there. So, oh, uh, so thank you for that. I have, feel very lucky. Yes, uh, I'm, I'm sure you are, and I, I need to try and find someone in my life who's been able to share those sorts of nuggets with me as well. Um, last of kind of the more serious style questions, yeah. what have been some of the more valuable lessons or experiences you've kind of had along the way? Anything that really sticks out and maybe drives even the way you approach things today? Yeah. And even I mean, then, those things sort of refine, but... That's that's true. I, I think um, the biggest lesson, you know, <laughs> the biggest lesson that I'm, I'm engaged with at the moment is, uh, is learning to apply oxygen to self before others um, from, from the plain metaphor. Um, I, it wasn't until quite recently that somebody, um, another developer I was speaking to kind of popped back up and said, oh, sorry, I vanished for six months. I've, I've been really seriously burned out. I, I had this and this and this and the other. And I had to, had to look after myself and take some time. And I'm like, oh, that's burnout. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, and I realised that, you know, the, the place that I'd reached um, after develop, after we closed down Defiant, uh, I was very depleted of the things that, that nourish me. Um, and uh, returning my focus to, to the things that do nourish me each day, spending time in the yard and spending time outside, exercise, spending time, yep. you know, uh, with my children, with my friends. Um, these are small things, but they're, they're the necessary bread and butter for, for a daily life that can sustain one uh, through their life. I mean, uh, without, without wanting to sound too much like stating the obvious, you know, life is the journey. Um, it is the things you yep. do every day. It is the things that you build your life around. Uh, it's not the things on the horizon. It's not the things you're moving towards. And, and it's really important to have big goals out there on the horizon to, to guide your steps. But actually making sure that you're taking good steps uh, is uh, is equally important. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, uh, so fixing, um, you know, fixing my own fitness and health and, and spending more quiet time doing the things that nourish me and the things I love has been has been a big learning period of the last couple of years for, for me. And I guess kind of convenient then that there's a pandemic along the way that forced you to be at home and you go, oh, I can just take oh, yourself yeah. out and go and exercise, right? <laughs> I mean, that's made it very easy. <laughs> so Just um, going to take half an hour for myself to go for a run, whatever the correct. case happens to be. It's brought the, the focus back to the, the family and, you know, and I've been spending a, a lot of time, um, uh, a lot of time with, with the kids and focusing on being as good a parent as, as I can. Uh, which about which I have no regrets, and and that's the one thing that you know, speaking to parents of older children, um, uh, I've not heard one person ever say they regret the time they made to spend with their children. So, uh, so the pandemic's been an opportunity from that perspective as well. Yeah, there's plenty of bad that came out of that thing, but yeah, lots yeah. of similar stories, and certainly even in my own case, they might are significantly younger, but similar sort of thing to be able to be present, even just I mean, if you if you're right. at work, you know baby's first crawl or whatever those sorts of things like they're things that might have been missed but i got to be there for those and yes. those are things that i'll that i'll treasure i mean that i could have gotten lucky maybe they would have happened on a weekend and i was right there but there's highly high likelihood that i would have missed those things and i i didn't 
didn't get to. Like I didn't, I was there, and that's something yeah. I always treasure. So, and it's certainly something that really drummed a message in. Like, okay, once we get out of this, whenever we get out of this, don't don't lose what what you've established here. Yeah, exactly. Some lighter ones as we wrap things up. If you could be credited for any game in any capacity, so just retroactively add your name into the credits and have been <laughs> in, in part responsible for it, can be as simple as special thanks, which of course you've got a few of those. What game would you pick? Is this a game I, I didn't do anything? You on, had nothing to on, do with, but you but would, would love would to love have been involved. Have with. Been involved yeah. Oh man! I mean, let me give you the answer that shows that I have the short-term memory of a goldfish which is um, I've been playing, I've, I've just about wrapped up today Immortality, which is the new Sam oh, Barlow yeah. game. And, uh, man, that game looked like so much fun to make. There was only a technical team of like five or six people there and there were hundreds of people making the, the film for it. But there's, there's something about that filmmaking process and something about the storytelling process and the themes that he's worked on um, that really resonated for me. And I, I like Sam. Um, he's, uh, he's a great chap. We've, we've spent some time together. Um, and I, I played that game in a deep sense of envy. Um, and the other one is there's a mobile game called Device 6 from, you know, seven years ago or something, which yeah, is a Samogo game. So it's by Samogo who are, who've done a bunch of other stuff as well, um, all of it very different. But Device 6 is this text-based mod feeling, you know, very much like a 60s detective, you know, mod style meets the prisoner, not the Australian prisoner, but uh, cell, yeah, cell block H, yeah. but the uh, but the UK TV series. Um, and it's just my jam. Like, it is not a game that was a blockbuster. It, it was not a game that blew everybody else's mind. But it just but hits it was, all the right notes for you. Absolutely my game, like that three four year block and certainly the best mobile game i personally have ever played for me yeah. um so yeah no it's great no fantastic choices uh if you could go back and replay any game strike it from your memory and get to come at a particular game from scratch what game would you love to be able to have that experience with oh that's a good one and sometimes I, uh... that can be you know the reasons that people bring to this sort of question can be very different too that could be because of the narrative itself it could be because of the the actual experience of you know the the playing aspect hmm. obviously there can be the melding of those two things as well there's there's so many different reasons why is there a particular game that stands out that you just wish you could go back to and yeah. try it again i mean that's really interesting actually um i've broken morgan jaffet you, you yes. have because i'm so i'm so not I don't replay games is, is one thing. Um, so I don't have this kind of pressing desire to go back to the past. I, yep. I don't, I don't tend to live too much in my past. Um, I, I spend a lot of, I'm, I'm very future and present focused yes. and, and because, because of that, um, this one's really messing me up. I, uh, I don't have a, good answer for that i'm so much more interested in the ways that i would play a game tomorrow and i can't think of a game i am so much a creation of my influences over yes. time i cannot think of a game that you could extract from my mind that was both important to me 
that wouldn't just leave me a completely different person and send me on some sort of butterfly effect alternative reality where where things are different but maybe things are different and good so so let's let's uh let's take out ultima ultima five wow and, uh, and get to, and, you get to try and, it again so and, oh, that's right and uh and you know but I, I probably wouldn't dig it now it's pretty pretty old-fashioned so <laughs> i'm sure you've got the ability to appreciate what it did back at the time and yes yeah yeah i, I can hold that but I, I don't think i could get the job i don't think i could have the spark that it brought to me at that time yes so i'm much fair. i'm much happier to have had it um much happier to have loved and lost than uh, than to have never loved at all very very well put and that is where we wrap things up for this episode thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing this journey so far and there's obviously some fantastic things on the on the way and i'm sure everyone listening is hotly anticipating capes and wherever things go for you going forward i'm incredibly appreciative of you giving me your time if people want to learn more about what you're up to capes and anything that comes afterwards where would people be best to go Oh, that, that is a good question. Um, for capes, they should uh, they should jump on the Steam page right now. Wish list, or as we go, said. Or, or, you know, Google Spitfire Interactive, which will take you to the, the website and the links and, and all of the things from there. Um, I'm, I've, I've dropped off social media over the last couple of years, which has actually been great. Um, it's liberating, it's, I'm sure. It's very liberating. It's occasionally difficult when you realise I used to be able to you know, communicate what we're up to to, to 40,000 people and I can't anymore. And maybe I should have put it on pause, but uh, but I don't really have a public facing thing for things I'm up to. Um, so I, I would encourage people to just get some sandalwood, burn that, chant my name three or Smoke four signals. times and, and things, things, will, things will occur. <laughs> uh, so people get to it. You heard him. It's... Yeah. As of when we record this, it's nice and it's mid-evening at this point. The, those exactly. smoke signals will be picked up. The flames That's will be right. seen. That's right. The, the circle will turn. Exactly. Go for it. As I said, Morgan, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing this journey so far. I'm, I'm incredibly appreciative for you giving me the time and, and being so... Oh, it's just some, some of the commentary there. So incredibly profound and giving me a lot to stew upon as well and, and even just to contextualise so much of what previous guests have been saying. Absolute pleasure. Again, don't go back and questions. listen to him because you'll hear the, so. the exchange of money slide. It's <laughs> exactly right. So, I think I should have been paying them. So, you know, that's uh, so. It's, Just to uh, pump you up to get you on the show. That's that yeah, was that's, part that's of the right. scheme. Yeah. <laughs> and it turned out PR helped us out. Excellent. So that was my waste of money. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> as yeah, th- thank you so much for this, and uh, listeners, as always, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time. That concludes this entry of Dev Diary. Be sure to subscribe to this feed, share with your friends, and give us a five-star review to help boost the show up the charts for greater exposure. If you have any people you'd like me to reach out to an interview, then please find me at Paul James Games on Twitter to help me get in touch with them. Until the next episode, however, it's been Morgan's story. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.